The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Great. Without further ado, I'd like to turn the time over to uh, Steve Orlando. You have Kevin Rudd's biography, so I'm not going to repeat what's in it. But let me just say that you have heard my criticisms often of the U.S. government that we don't have sufficient China expertise at the highest levels of the U.S. government. You know, we don't have it at the secretary level or at the deputy secretary level. We don't even have somebody who speaks Chinese at the assistant secretary level. So it was quite stunning when I met the former prime minister, prime minister of Australia, and in a, in a meeting which was run entirely in Chinese. And he spoke perfectly on subjects as complicated as the difference between sovereignty and administration of a particular place, which is not exactly the easiest concept to convey when you're speaking in, in English. But the depth of knowledge that he has about China the ability to communicate with the Chinese in their own language is something which I have to say it's 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 awe-inspiring. And then on the other hand, I go, what's happened to our government? But I guess Australia is different from the United States, and that you could become prime minister is a real, I think, a real testimony to uh, the broad-mindedness of, of Chinese. I know when Ambassador Huntsman spoke Chinese in the in the Republican debates, his poll numbers went even further down. They went from, they went from one percent to one half of one percent. So it was viewed as a real negative. But really, you are in for a tremendous treat tonight. Uh, join me in welcoming Kevin Ray. Thank you very much, uh, Tim, for your hospitality and having us here. And uh, also to, uh, to Steve for those very kind, welcoming remarks. I always find with uh, Chinese language, there's one core ingredient to having effective dialogue uh, with uh, lucid exchange with our Chinese friends. And that essential ingredient is alcohol. Um, <laughs> and it was that evening, which uh, was so alcohol fueled that it enhanced my fluency. And, uh, I did go on until 2 in the morning. And decreased. Uh, Steve's, shall I say, cogent powers of recollection. <laughs> but I digress. Uh, it's uh, great to be back in this great city and this great country, which uh, I love very much. I've entitled my address tonight, uh, China 2.0, China's new leadership for the next phase of China's economic reform. Uh, it's a privilege to address uh, the National Committee on the U.S.-China Relations here in New York. This distinguished institution for the better part of the last half century has sought to bring together the world's most populous country and the world's largest economy, notwithstanding the profound ideological, strategic and foreign policy divides which have separated China and the United States over the decades. 1966 was not exactly an auspicious year to establish this national committee. Uh, China was about to enter a decade of orchestrated political violence, otherwise called the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution. Back then, Mao uh, ran a personal dictatorship. Deng Xiaoping was about to be purged. And followed soon after by a man called Xi Jinping, father of China's newly appointed leader, Xi Jinping, before Xi Jinping himself in 69, as a 16-year-old, was sent down to the countryside to learn from the peasants. Nearly half a century later, Xi Jinping leads a country whose economy has been fundamentally transformed, and which over the course of the next decade is likely to surpass the United States as the world's largest. Of course, what hasn't changed over the intervening decades is that China remains ruled uh, as a one-party state, practicing what has generally come to be described as its own brand of state capitalism. The core challenge for the United States, the West and the rest, is how to chart a common future with the China of the 21st century, given that China is now on track to become a global great power and a country that increasingly shapes the destiny of the Asian hemisphere, where my country, Australia, has its home. Responding to this challenge effectively by maintaining the peace, advancing our prosperity, while maintaining the integrity of the post-war global rules-based order looms as the central foreign policy task of the United States for the decade ahead and for the half-century ahead. Today I want to address the following. 
the nature of China's new leadership since the 80th Party Congress. Second, China's stated policy priorities for the five-year period ahead. Third, in particular, the next phase of China's economic reform program, which has the capacity to make or break China's economic superpower status in the decade ahead. And finally, how the US, the West and the rest should now engage with China, given that we face a critical window of opportunity now that President Obama has been re-elected through until early 2017, which will almost overlap entirely with the length of Xi Jinping's first five-year term as General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. So, on to the new leadership. Who are these people? What's their likely policy orientation? And here I do draw extensively on remarks I've made in poorer elsewhere in the world. And I make these remarks based on their political careers so far, uh, of the seven members of the Politburo Standing Committee, what they've said most recently, and in my own case, uh, having had the privilege of spending a reasonable amount of time in conversation over the years with four of the seven, most extensively with Xi Jinping and Premier-elect Li Keqiang when they visited Australia while I was still serving as Prime Minister. Xi Jinping, in my view, is comfortable with the mantle of leadership. He is confident of both his military and reformist credentials, both through his father's career and his own. He therefore has nothing to prove to either of these constituencies. He is widely read and has an historian's understanding of the responsibilities which he now faces for the country. He is by instinct, in my judgment, a leader. He deeply admires Deng Xiaoping and is highly unlikely to be satisfied with the safe option of simply maintaining the policy status quo. He speaks directly and, in my experience, without notes. Of all his predecessors, he is the most likely to become more than simple primus inter pares, first among equals, albeit still within the confines of collective leadership. Let us not forget that Xi Jinping was appointed immediately as chairman of the Central Military Commission, unlike his predecessor, who had to wait two years until Jiang Zemin finally relinquished the position. These attributes have been also on display over the last 30 days or so since Xi became leader. Unlike his predecessor, Xi Jinping released his first public statement within three days, starkly stating that corruption could destroy the party and drawing direct analogies with the Arab Spring. No Chinese leader has been this explicit before about the potential collapse of party legitimacy. In a hugely symbolic move, in my judgment, Xi Jinping also decided to travel to Shenzhen, where Deng had launched the first of China's special economic zones more than 30 years ago. The SEZs are the embodiment of the entire program of the internationalizing of the Chinese economy. Not only was Xi Jinping stating that Deng got it right, he was also emulating directly Deng's so-called southern expedition, his Nanshun, 20 years ago. In 1992, when following the conservative reaction to Tiananmen in 1989, Deng went back to Shenzhen at the sprightly age of 88 to state that reform now needed to proceed even faster. Almost 20 years later exactly, Xi returns to the heartland of the Chinese economic reform and opening project and tells the party and the nation that there must now be more reform. This is within the politics of Chinese political symbolism, I think, of considerable importance. Lest we conclude from all of this that Xi Jinping has forgotten his military background, Xi Jinping also in late November made a public point of lauding uh, Lord Yang, the architect of China's carrier-borne aircraft program, as being the father of China's rising status as a maritime power. Finally, there's also the question of Xi Jinping's political style, which Xi is seeking to make an immediate and, I believe, radical departure from that of his predecessors. He has not sought to heap praise on Hu Jintao's accomplishments as would normally be expected. Instead, he has issued a stern rebuke to the party apparatus, saying there are too many content-free statements by leaders, too many content-free ceremonies, and simply too much going through the motions, in the formal engagements of the party. And to give visual illustration to the dictum he issued at his first meeting when chairing the Politburo Standing Committee, during his later visit to Shenzhen, he chose to travel by minibus, not by limousine, not closing down the traffic systems, not having wall-to-wall coverage by the official Chinese media, instead relying in large part on Chinese social media to get the message across that despite being a princeling himself, he did not intend to behave like one. 
this is an important measure in re-legitimising the party in the eyes of the Chinese people, given their universal contempt for what is described as party privilege. The new Premier, of course, will be Li Keqiang. It is my privilege to spend time with Mr Li, a senior vice-premier when he visited Australia in recent years. Quite a lot of time. Li is widely known as an economic reformer and as Premier will chair the State Council, which will be responsible for the implementation of the next phase of the economic reform program. Li is also deeply familiar with the reformist directions of the recently released economic reform blueprint, produced conjointly by the NDRC and the World Bank, entitled China 2030. Next in the Standing Committee hierarchy is Zhang Jiang. Zhang is regarded as a highly reliable political manager, having recently been entrusted with the complex task of taking over the Chongqing Provincial Party Committee after the purge of Bo Lai, following the multiple scandals concerning himself, his family and his wife. Zhang, since 2008, of course, has been one of China's vice premiers. Most critically, between 2002 and 2007, he was responsible for the administration of the party committee in one of China's most wealthy provinces, Guangdong. Number four on the hierarchy, of course, is Yu Zhongsheng. Yu, since 2007, has been Shanghai Party Secretary, China's traditional and continuing commercial capital. Shanghai's reputation is that it lies at the forefront of further economic reform, more expansive markets, and a greater role for the private sector. You only have to sit down and speak with Shanghainese to understand where they see themselves in the Chinese economic galaxy, and it's somewhere near the centre. You will be joined by Liu Yunshan. While the seven men of the standing committee, Liu is regarded possibly as more politically conservative, given his responsibility of heading the propaganda department. In that capacity, Liu will be responsible for the complex and politically sensitive task of managing state control of China's media at a time of China's unfolding social media revolution and increasingly questioning official and semi-official media as well. One of the most critical additions to the standing committee will be Wang Qishan. Wang Qishan has supported much of... Uh, has supported much of China's work in the G20, or I got to know him quite well, as well as in the annual US-China Strategic and Economic Dialogue. He's well-known and generally well-liked here in the United States. He has a formidable public career, including being mayor of Beijing from 2004 onwards, and having been a successful secretary of the Beijing Organizing Committee with the extraordinarily spectacular 2008 Beijing Olympics. Wang is a no-nonsense reformer. He's very much influenced by his mentor, former Premier Zhu Rongji. He was Zhu who pioneered Chinese accession to the WTO, a massively controversial decision at the time. Finally, the standing committee will include Zhang Gaoli. I recently spent time with him in Tianjin before the most recent party uh, congress. Zhang is also known as a pro-market economic reformer. He is currently party secretary of Tianjin, which has seen total economic transformation in recent years as one of China's major centres of global economic engagement, not appropriately recognised internationally for the significance which Tianjin now occupies within the Chinese national economy. There are no known obvious political tensions between this seven-member team. It bodes well for China's ability to deliver strong leadership for the critical period ahead. Furthermore, the overwhelming political and policy centre of gravity of the new team lies in the direction of a further structural reform of the Chinese economy, a cautious approach to what is described in the Chinese system as political reform, while there remains an open question as to the precise foreign policy directions and security policy directions of the country, given that none of the standing seven have a particular background in these domains. If we look at policy priorities for the future, then we must look at the work report produced by the Alien Party Congress. The work report could best be described as, for the next five years, the Bible for China's policy direction. To sustain the biblical analogy, one step further, the 12 five-year plan of 2010 perhaps could be described as the Old Testament, the the 2012 work report, the New Testament. But as all biblical scholars will tell you, both should be read together. uh, If you are to understand the framework intended by the authors, secular or divine. In a recent analysis by Timothy Heath, it's argued that the work report represents the functional equivalent of a desired strategic end state and interim strategic objectives to support that end state, along with timelines for each. It's worth reading. On 
the economy, the work report argues clearly that economic development remains the key to resolving the problems in the country, and therefore, quote, a new development mode is needed, unquote. On political reform, the work report emphasises systemic reform to standardise decision-making processes, institutionalising procedures, and strengthening laws and regulations, in part in response to the grave threat posed by corruption. Heath argues persuasively that the, section, that the session on foreign policy guidance contained in the work report stands out for the sharpness and specificity of its guidance compared with previous versions. The work report specifically identifies the following tasks for the next five years. The revision of great power relations, consolidation of China's influence in Asia, leveraging developing powers to promote reform in the world order, leveraging multilateral institutions to encourage reform of the international order, and protection of Chinese rights and interests in the maritime and other domains. Of all these international imperatives, the one which stands out most starkly from the previous work report is that, of the first, is that for the first time China defines itself as a maritime power that will, quote, firmly uphold its maritime rights and interests, unquote. Critically, the reference to China as a maritime power is included in the section dealing with resource security. So what about economic reform? The core task of the leadership's policy agenda for the 2012-2017 period is the reform of the economy, the introduction of a new Chinese economic growth model. It is critical that we in the collective West fully comprehend the dimensions of what the Chinese are now setting out to do. This is a very large undertaking. For if it succeeds, this period of reform will be seen by the economic historians as being of comparable, if not greater, significance to the first period of reform initiated by Deng Xiaoping 30 years ago. Put simply, the Chinese have concluded that their old growth model has now reached its use-by date and is no longer capable of sustaining the levels of economic growth necessary for the future to continue to generate sufficient levels of employment, raise living standards and lift people out of poverty to guarantee the party's long-term legitimacy. China's old growth model, which you'll be familiar with, is based on low wages, labour-intensive manufacturing for export, made possible by high levels of state investment, in turn made possible by high levels of domestic savings, often to the punishment and detriment of those good savers who earn practically no interest on their savings. Therefore, the challenge for the future is the extent to which this model continues to apply. It's reached its use-by date in China's coastal provinces, it's about to do so in China's central provinces, and during the next decade it's likely to do so in Sichuan and the country's west. The specific reasons for this proposed change in the growth model are several-fold. First, Chinese economists are anxious about the level of wage inflation which has broken out in the economy, wages rising 43% since 2009 and unit labour costs by around 22% since 2007, thereby increasingly eroding China's cost competitiveness in global markets. Second, Chinese economists have become exceptionally cautious about their historical reliance on the strength of global markets capable of absorbing China's labour-intensive exports forever to wit, the global financial crisis and the non-recovery of global trade since then. Third, Chinese competitiveness has also been impacted by the significant appreciation of yuan over the last 12 years, having risen almost 36% against the dollar over that period. Someone should tell the Congress that. There are also deep concerns about the sustainability of Chinese fixed asset investment strategy to absorb uh, the growth gap for the rest of the economy. Investment as a share of national output was already high in 2004 at 41%, but this increased further to 46% by 2011 and approaches 50% as we reach the end of 2012. These are very big numbers. The flip side of the story is that consumption as a proportion of national output has fallen from 45% a decade ago to 35% in 2011. Of course, it's argued that China's national investment stock relative to its population and relative to its future growth requirements is relatively low. But against most economic growth models for newly industrialised, newly industrialising economies in the past, this gap between investment and consumption is virtually unprecedented. Furthermore, the pace of China's public investment boom, initiated by the $650 billion uh, US mega stimulus package launched in 2008-9 in response to the global financial crisis, has proven to be neither targeted nor temporary. Each time China 
China's growth rate has shown signs of slowing since the height of the crisis. The economic policy lever has been switched again back to public investment, thereby masking the need for deeper-level productivity-driven reforms in the body of the economy. And finally, there is the question as to the ultimate financial sustainability of such an investment strategy, even by the Chinese state, given that much of this expansion has been driven by official credit flows from China's state-owned banks offering capital at preferential rates. There is also the related question as to the quantum of the hidden liabilities of China's state-owned banking sector as a result of this state-driven public investment boom. The results of all the above are reflected in part in China's slowing economic performance over the last year and a half. In third quarter 2012, China's growth rate fell for the seventh straight quarter in a row, although economists are now forecasting a growth recovery in the fourth quarter, which should still render an overall growth rate of 7.5% plus for 2012 calendar year. This nonetheless contrasts with the high point of Chinese economic growth prior to the crisis of 2007, when China was routinely generating double-digit growth. In fact, growth in 2012 is likely to be just on half of that which was achieved in 2007. Consistent with Chinese statecraft, the Chinese have analysed these challenges carefully in recent years, and their policy conclusions are by and large contained in the 12th five-year plan, which advances new, a new growth model for the future. Last year in Australia, I had a series of lectures entitled China 2.0 around this very thesis. If, in fact, the implementation of a new growth model succeeds, it will spawn a new range of economic opportunities for China and the world that we have not seen in the past. The Chinese leadership has concluded that the new growth model should be based on higher levels of domestic consumption, lower savings, more generous government safety nets, rapid expansion of the services sector to meet China's equally rapid urbanisation process, as well as greater opportunities for private capital. I believe the new Chinese leadership may well embrace the following policy directions. We are likely to see further market reforms of the Chinese economy. I believe we'll see reforms of China's state-owned enterprises and possibly the privatisation of some. I believe we'll see reforms to the Chinese financial services industry and a greater ability for Chinese private enterprises to have easier and more competitive access to finance and to sustain and expand their operations. I believe we'll see a further range of other microeconomic reforms outlined in the China 2030 report and its emphasis on education, skills, training, technology and a new approach to fiscal federalism given that the present Chinese local governments are too cash-strapped to discharge the policy mandates given to them from the centre because of lack of access to reliable revenue flows. I believe we'll see a more robust approach through necessity to national environmental regulation and China's own clean energy revolution, given that the leadership has concluded that China does not want to strangle itself environmentally or ignore local popular protests against environmental degradation, but instead turn green economy transformation into a new growth platform for the future. I believe we'll also see further reforms to China's currency markets, which over time are likely to make Chinese imports more competitive in the domestic market. Because many of these reforms are inherently controversial, it is likely that incoming Premier Li Keqiang will package up many of these reforms directions under the rubric of China's new urbanisation policy. Li Keqiang will do this for a purpose. For the first time in Chinese history in 2011, more Chinese people lived in urban centres than in the countryside. By 2025, China is projected to have more than 200 cities with a population of more than 1 million. Given the challenges and opportunities of urbanisation, are likely to present a better political vehicle for the Chinese political marketplace, some of the more controversial reforms I've listed above need to be embraced within the concept under the Koha, under the Malta of urbanisation policy. Whether it is a success or failure, this enterprise will not ultimately be dependent purely on the integrity of the economic policy itself. It will be very much determined by the realities of China's political economy and whether this program of economic reform, which has already been thoroughly researched, can in fact be politically delivered on the ground. My argument is this. Given China's success with economic transformations in the past, there is no prima facie reason why we should not conclude that China will fail at the next transformational challenge for the future. In fact, it would be imprudent to assume otherwise. 
a U.S. policy response. Here I'll summarize some of the points I made yesterday in Washington and therefore cover it quickly. The full text of my printed remarks will go into it in greater detail. The core objective of the United States, its friends and allies for the period ahead is to maximize cooperation, minimize conflict, and to manage disagreements with China, all within the framework of maintaining the post-war global rules-based order and building an Asia-Pacific regional security order as well. That's why in my address yesterday in Washington, I called for a new five-year US-China strategic roadmap. In the absence of such a strategic roadmap, there is always a danger of strategic drift. Alternatively, the bilateral agenda simply being dominated by the challenges of the issue management of the day, whether they are strategically important or not. A new US-China strategic roadmap would assist in removing some of these difficulties, but not all. I think there are five elements to it. First, regular summitry. These two leaders need to become very familiar with each other. Second, also, their staff should get to know each other very well on key policy questions. Third, both President Xi and President Obama need to have an undisputed point person to be the ultimate go-to person on the relationship. At the USN, this would mean the National Security Advisor or a senior official within the NSC who can speak comfortably across the administration and with authority. At this critical juncture of the US-China relationship, America needs the next Henry Kissinger for all the back-channeling that is necessary both behind and between official presidential meetings. Similarly, the Chinese need their own Henry Kissinger as well. They don't have one either. Fourth, the United States and China should embark on a realistic program to make the current global rules-based order work. Increasingly, the order does not work. We're familiar with the impasse over Syria at present in the United Nations Security Council, but post-conflict Syria may present new possibilities for Sino-US cooperation. In other blockages in the UN system, Doha, climate change, nuclear non-proliferation, global economic imbalances, but the US and China have an interest in demonstrating that the rules-based order can work and deliver real results. This is critical for the future stability of the global economy. Both China and the US should identify at least one of these areas of potential global collaboration, which together they can drive to a successful global conclusion in order to demonstrate to one another in the world that they can in fact make the global rules-based order work. Fifth, a new US-China strategic roadmap should also embrace the principles of how to build a new rules-based security order for East Asia. How do we create what I've described elsewhere as a new Pax Pacifica, which is neither a new Pax Americana or, for that matter, a Pax Sinica by another name? This involves working and agreeing on the strategic and conceptual language of such a regional rules-based order that is comprehensible in both countries and across the region and not lost in translation, as often occurs. It should include basic principles of regional security cooperation as well as specific competence and security building measures that help facilitate dispute resolution as well as prevent conflict through miscalculation. And finally, a new US strategic roadmap should also be consolidated into a new Shanghai communique between China and the United States. There is a deep appetite within Chinese political and bureaucratic culture for fundamental organizing principles that have been agreed to between the relevant parties. The language of a new communique could achieve that purpose, assuming, of course, that the content of the communique reflects a substantive set of principles on the entrenchment of the global and regional rules-based order, as well as specific programs of work that I've identified above. To conclude, we do, in fact, live in very interesting times. I've always been an optimist about the future of of US-China relations and the future of Australia-China relations. However, we will not secure the future by wishful thinking alone. We must think clearly, we must plan together, we must act together. We must do so without ever believing that there are only two futures available to us on China, either conflict or kowtow, either being anti-China or pro-China. These are outdated Cold War concepts. They should be consigned to the rubbish bin, the la di of history. 
our approach and China's approach uh, and our approach and China's response to our approach must be significantly more sophisticated than that if we are to secure the future. What is inspiring about this National Committee on US-China Relations is that this institution has seen it all over the last 50 years. Good times, bad times, the best of times, the worst of times in US-China relations, but you're still here. The institution has continued in order to provide a critical non-government institutional capacity to deal with the challenges of the day while looking forward to the transformational opportunities for tomorrow. Together, I believe, the United States, China and Australia can help craft a truly Pacific century together.
people will fall back into poverty and their legitimacy to leadership and of a party and begin to disintegrate. It's not because this leadership team have gone home one night and read Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations and spent six months at the Chicago School uh, to work out that price theory works and fallen in love with an intellectual theory. They are very much the Deng Xiaoping School this cat catches mice, um, and therefore that's what they intend to do. Now, the political economy question, will it succeed? Um, um, it's, um, it's a bit like predicting the future of the Western novel in the 22nd century. I'm not sure, um, but I have very little doubt about the resolution of the centre to do this. Um, in terms of the administrative mechanisms to make it work, uh, I believe there is great capacity for that to occur. One final footnote. The 2030 report, in my understanding, sure has not been translated into Chinese for external reviews. It's been put into Chinese for internal use. Um, as, that's my understanding. We should chat, chat about that later on. And my understanding from recent conversations with one of those, not my conversation, someone else's conversations with one of the members of the current standing committee, the new standing committee, is that there is a deep familiarity with the blueprint contained within it. If people say Li Keqiang actually was mostly responsible for the preparation of that report and is deeply familiar with its content, um, it was translated by private sources. Okay. In other words, it wasn't translated by government and it is in circulation, but the fact that the government could not put out uh, translation and when, when they ask, they say, oh, there's argument over wording. I mean, come on. Not, not a serious. Remember also, though, um, Steve, the enormous controversy around Jurongji's uh, attempts to secure accession to the uh, WTO. But, uh, there are these are more fundamental reforms, frankly, than even that. But it reminds me very much of the political economy of that time. So will they cross the Rubicon? Um, I think they will. Of course, the danger for this process is not internal, it's whether the global economy continues to be sour and denies the coverage necessary in terms of reasonably robust global growth levels to provide the cushion necessary to do the politics to get this done. Because there will be losers on the way through. And the Goyang and the State Assets Administration uh, will be formidable participants uh, in this process. Drill down, for instance, you mentioned financial reform and currency reform. You know, I think that the, the vested interests that oppose that kind of reform, obviously the, the state banks who have basically guaranteed margins, it's a wonderful life. You know, you have a guarantee, your deposit rate is controlled and your lending rate is controlled. You sit there and you just have a big capital base and, you know, it doesn't require a ton of work. It's, it's, um, it's nice in currency. There are a lot of people who benefit from having the current system. Where do you see that? So five years from now, where do you think we've seen those reforms? What's the financial system going to look like? Well, let me answer the harder question first, which is what the currency will look like. I think uh, the response to that in five years' time, it'll be, <clears throat> frankly, a much bigger band uh, for the float. Uh, that's my judgment. Uh, it will be, at best, a dirty float, as they would say in financial market circles, but it will be a float within a wide band. What the parameters are of the band, I don't know, but I think that's the direction which they're headed. On the first point, which is the nature of um, uh, financial uh, market reform, uh, the critical policy challenge is clear. What I do not know is what the answer is. The critical policy challenge is to provide uh, equitable access to affordable capital for SMEs in the private sector in the rapidly expanding services sector in particular uh, because that's going to be labour-intensive and create a whole bunch of new jobs. How they intend to achieve that outcome of competition policy rather than administratively mandating banks to lend equitably to SOEs and non-SOEs, I do not know and would be false of me to pretend to the script that I do. But that is a problem that will agree that they need to fix. We've got a very illustrious audience with us today. Are there folks who want to um, ask some questions? Put up Tim and then Richard. Uh, thank you very much. Um, Mr. Rudd, I was at a 
conference at Tsinghua University a couple of weeks ago on U.S.-China relations, and I was impressed by how pessimistic a lot of the Chinese scholars were about the relationship. I think people on the American side seem to be a bit more optimistic. The Chinese scholars seem to be guided in their thinking about uh, cosmic forces at work in, in uh, superpower relations and so on. I, I wonder uh, whether... Uh, what advice you would have in terms of things that the United States could do to maybe increase uh, the, the confidence on the Chinese side that this relationship will work? I think the core of it, uh, it's, it's reflected on more extensively in what I said yesterday in Washington, it being a politics and foreign policy kind of capital of this country. So, um, and it's along these lines. Number one, um, you're right. Um, the Chinese uh, are observing collective toxicity in their neighbouring relations and in uh, uh, what they fear to be uh, American manipulation of their neighbouring relations. Cutting to the chase, that's what you get told in Beijing. I'm sure we'll get told the same next week if you walk on Dasha, and I'm giving a lecture there. Um, probably more robustly and directly than that. Um, I think because of that, um, if you're looking at the um, security environment of China as it embarks upon this uh, next phase of economic reform, it presents two quite conflicting um, and difficult challenges. One uh, is that no one in China who wants to conclude the next phase of economic reform wants to see that derailed by a security relationship getting out of control. Open brackets, Japan, close brackets. But also open brackets, Vietnam, close brackets. Um, but Japan, of course, is more fundamentally economically relevant. Because we've never seen anything approaching regional conflicts since 1979, uh, all of us in this room, bar one or two of us, um, have forgotten what impact the uh, absence of security and stability means for uh, investor confidence and economic activity. I don't think the Chinese leadership have. I think they're very conscious of that and they're very seized of it. But what's the militating factor against that? We also know that the Chinese leadership is conscious of the nationalist forces alive within its own body politic. You only have to spend um, 15 minutes on Weibo this evening to find that out, uh, as I do most uh, most evenings. Um, and so that is there. But of course, um, if uh, the economic reform agenda is difficult domestically, um, there is a logic which is often argued that uh, therefore Xi Jinping's leadership cannot afford to, uh, shall I say, uh, reach accommodations on the um, on the security policy front because that would be seen to be weakness and therefore that would compromise and drain the political capital necessary for the economic reform project, which is central. Um, that's necessary to say by way of background. The two to three substantive things America can do is to present the Chinese with an idea for a strategic concept for global and regional security cooperation. The Chinese system will not generate this. It's not capable of generating it. It's too dangerous to generate it. The Americans can, and therefore the initiative actually lies here, not there underpinned by the fact that last time I looked, you were the world's remaining superpower. China is not. And therefore there's an intrinsic recognition of that reality by the hardheads in Beijing as well. And then on the two core points about what is in it, as I said, there is something to be said to go to China and say, for example, let's take trade. Let's us two conclude a trade round together globally. Former USTR, you know how difficult that is. But you also know how close we got in 2008 to getting there at the end. China, US, and India were about that far apart. Um, and then the Indians left and then the Chinese ran. Um, given where both economies are up to at the moment, there is an attractive agenda there given what their dividend to global economic confidence as well as, frankly, market liberalisation for Chinese goods and services and American goods and services because growth is challenged here too, uh, to sit down together and to conclude what was virtually concluded four, concluded four years ago. 
that happened, India would rapidly follow. Of course, it's not the only agenda either. The third element of what the Americans can do is go to the Chinese and say, you guys don't want any of these incidents to blow up. East China Sea, South China Sea. Neither do we. I think that's a fair summary of the American position. Um, I know it's a fair summary of our position in Australia because this is generally bad for business. Uh, It's bad for the economy and it's bad for people. Therefore, here are four to five basic principles of how we manage dispute resolution uh, in these areas. Now, the devil, of course, is in the detail of all of this, um, but the categories of what that would contain are listed in my um, remarks yesterday. Of course, there's a sub-drill down again in terms of the, the particularities of what would need to be done on each point. My overall point is initiative with the US, one item globally, demonstrate that the Chinese would want to together make the global rules based order work. Two, three, uh, three one item, uh, a series of confidence security building measures regionally, which can be advanced in language which is acceptable within Chinese national security dogma and language and concepts, and that's possible. And finally, to dress it up a bit, call it a new Shanghai communicator. Absent that, what I fear is incremental strategic drift, as frankly both capitals just engage in day-to-day reactive issue management, and where does that take you in the end other than a pretty bad direction? I was at an event at Columbia Columbia University last week where one of your countrymen, Hugh White, was talking about a book that he has written which basically argues for a Pax Americana Sinica for the Asia-Pacific region right now. During the course of that uh, event, he mentioned that Xi Jinping has been on the Central Military Commission for the past five years. And as such, then, he is fully conversant and probably supportive of this aggressive posture that China has been taking to defend its new core interests in the South China Sea. Um, Does he run the risk of sort of over confidence in terms of how far he thinks China can push Japan, number one. Number two, do they understand the Pandora's box that they're opening if Japan decides that it has to seriously uh, remilitarize? Um, and Hugh Patrick, who's a professor at Columbia who knows Japan, estimated that it would take Japan six months to go nuclear. I think these are very good questions. On the first point, in terms of Professor White's book from Australia, um, I disagree with most of his conclusions. We'll have time for another so, uh, seminar on that subject. In, in summary, my approach to how we manage this relationship, uh, this critical relationship in the 21st century between China and the United States, it needs realist foundations international relations terms, and it needs neoliberal levels of cooperation constructed uh, on the basis of those realist foundations. Um, The rebalance to Asia, the uh, American decision to join the East Asia Summit, the extension of the TPP to a door opening to Japan and potentially to China, these are fundamental, what I've described as realist repositionings by the United States in the last several years, which I support. That having been done, the time comes actually to construct what I describe as uh, the architecture of uh, strategic cooperation. The three points I mentioned before in response to the earlier question. But you can't do that in the absence of realist foundations. Finally, on the Xi Jinping question, can I um, answer your question by quoting one of your fellow countrymen, Stephen Roy, um, who said recently, I can't remember where now, um, but listen carefully when State says these things. He said, look, Chinese political system, it's a one-party state. So if you're a political leader in that system, does that necessarily mean that on your way through, you will necessarily give full ventilation to every aspect of your, shall I say, uh, personal policy (coughs) predilections and predispositions? 
Uh, if that was the case, and you wanted to be a transformational leader at some point in the future, the nature of the system is you don't do that. So if he was Vice Chairman of the Military Commission during that period of time, I'm not entirely convinced uh, that, uh, that uh, this therefore meant that Xi Jinping was urging every one of those decisions. That's just my observation. Similarly on questions of what's called economic and political reform as well. My final point on this, and it's, it's quite critical, is that, and I base this on conversations with him myself and others who have had long conversations with him about these questions, he is a keen student of history. Uh, someone reminded us earlier today, um, when he came to the United States as uh, the then Defence Minister, Gun Bial's private secretary, way back in the Mesolithic period of US-China relations, um, 1980, um, uh, just after cowboy hats and dunstuffing and the rest, um, uh, he would have been exposed to, frankly, he was exposed to the um, phenomenal capacity of uh, US military power. Chinese are very respectful of that continuing reality. It is a reality. And therefore, there is an acute consciousness, even on the part of the hardliners in the Chinese leadership, that you can't push these things too far. So what I'm saying is, and the burden of my remarks is from coming from a country which has China as its largest trading partner, uh, and is one of America's oldest continuing allies, an alliance, by the way, I should say, to our Chinese friends, which predates the establishment of the People's Republic um, and was formed as an anti-Japanese initiative, an anti-Chinese initiative. Um, that altering the strategic mindset is critical in both capitals. You can form not just a modus vivendi here, but through the kind of what I describe as new strategic roadmap, global border cooperation, one area, regional cooperation, five sets of confidence, security building measures, wrap it up and communicate, you create a new mindset about how you can manage this in the future rather than simply saying all these determinist forces are going to crush us in the end. That's my view. First our lady, then Pierre. Thank you so much for your comment. Would you um, help, help me with a practical situation? If you were head of, a, of an American, if you were the CEO of an American company here in America, let's say running 100 million um, in sales, and I don't understand my accent. Ah! <laughs> 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 okay. And 10% of your sales are, are, are uh, being um, ex- exported to China today. Would you have, and what you mentioned, the, the reform policies, one of the things I might see is small to medium-sized enterprises, private enterprise, becoming a, um, a, a, a potential competitor to my customer base in China. Is, is that something that's a, a possibility that you would look at, or is that... So domestic Chinese uh, SMEs growing and prospering, becoming your competitors in terms of what you sell in. Uh, yeah, there's every prospect of that, and it's called um, the great competitive dream. Um, but frankly, the cake in the Chinese economy then just grows bigger and bigger. What's the greatest, what is the biggest generator of economic activity and employment in this country? In my country, it's the SMEs, frankly, uh, across our entire country. Sure, you have big companies who employ tens of thousands of people, but the overwhelming slice of Australian employment generation comes out of the small and medium business sector. Um, the, the key which these reformers understand to unlock China's next wave of economic potential and activity is to unlock that sector, which goes back to the excellent question which Steve asked me before, for which I do not have a cogent response, which is what, therefore, is the financial sector reform which unleashes competitive capital supplies to those firms to work. But let's just say... Uh, Mr. Uh, you're in, let's just say you're operating in Chaozhou, um, and, uh, and Mr. Archie Fock in, in Chaozhou uh, grows from a company of two to a company of 200 and outcompetes you in the field that your company currently works and sells 10% of your product into the country. Just the nature of the business you know, is that the level of activity, which is now going to expand in that part of China as a consequence of uh, what he's done, is going to create a bunch of other related, frankly, market opportunities. It's simply a question of dexterity in the market. And what am I preaching to you in America about this for? Because this is where that sort of market flexibility was kind of invented and done pretty well in the first place. 
nothing is forever in capitalism. Pietro, <laughs> uh, you mentioned Weibo a couple of minutes ago. Yeah. To what extent do you think that net citizens and public opinion could start shaping up policies in China in coming years? Putting up policies? Uh, shaping up. Oh, shape, shaping up policies. Well, um, it's a pretty uh, interesting environment. Um, I've said, who's, in, who's on Weibo here? Tongxin uh, Weibo, Xinlang Weibo. Okay. And so you know that I'm on Weibo because the Chinese are so badly written. That's me. That's my great attestation of authenticity that I'm on Weibo. Because they know that if I was a serious tech politician, I'd get someone to render it to an elegant written Chinese written by someone like um, Steve here. Um, <laughs> okay. The. Um, I am personally surprised by the dynamism of the Chinese social media space. Uh, I know when it's been uh, not perfectly free, but frankly, it's too big, too diverse, and frankly, um, too um, um, uh, vociferous to be shut up. So let's go to the second question, which is when does this um, 100 Flowers movement um, currently underway uh, within the Chinese social media space? And I know where the last 100 Flowers movement ended. Um, uh, But um, uh, your question is right, that when do people who are netizens start organising political propositions? I think at a local level, um, there is obviously great anxiety about people using the uh, social media space to organise protest activity, and we'll see see how that's happened. But in terms of um, putting forward what's called policy ideas, my sense of the current body politic is that um, uh, given what's happening in the Renda, given what's happening in the Jungsia, and given what's happening in the other institutions of the state, uh, if people are putting up ideas which are not simply let's bring down the state tomorrow, um, but particular Zorfa and particular ways ahead, and particular approaches to how do you manage the economy in a particular sub-region, I think that's possible. There's a guy, I only follow about half a dozen guys in Weibo, and uh, one is some movie actress in Shanghai, and, uh, and uh, the other one is this, uh, um, I just go, bing, 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 bing. I, there's no method to what I do. And, uh, uh, one is my son-in-law, another is a good friend of mine, Rachel Gang, who's uh, one of the anchors on Central Chinese Television. Another one is um, uh, this guy who's a party official at a uh, in a mine municipality about three hours east of uh, Hangzhou uh, in eastern Georgia. Now I read this guy's stuff, and he's and he's a party official, but he's he's always pushing the envelope in terms of we should be doing this, we should be doing that, we should be doing this, and he's not just singing from the hymn sheet. So in answer to your question, I see evidence as I read the stuff myself that it's evolving in that direction, so long as it stays away from the core questions of the political role of the party. I should have at the beginning actually thanked Ray Chang'an, who is a member, who is not only an anchor on CCTV, but is a young leader in the Young Leaders Forum of the National Committee, who's responsible for, he's a Jeshaw in here, but for, um, for us, so um, I should thank him. I know you have a plane to catch to Paris. Let me just ask one very short final question, which is, you've given enormous thought to these issues which are U.S.-China issues. Have you presented? Do people in the U.S. government, are they receptive to these ideas? Because it's really one of the more thoughtful um, ideas that I've heard from outside of government about how we should propose, how we should be approaching the relationship in the new term, both new terms. I think what I find both in um, Washington and Beijing, to be quite honest, is people searching for a way through this, serious people, smart people. Um, And so therefore, I mean, my mission watching yesterday and here today is simply to lay out some ideas on a table. Uh, I'm not an American and I'm not a Chinese, okay? I'm from uh, a minor parish called Australia. but what I sense in both places is that there is a conceptual and in part political appetite to negotiate a future. Um, and I think that's large enough for, frankly, concrete ideas to put on the table. What I've said on these subjects is quite specific, but deliberately so. 
um, it's time to get past what I describe as you know first principles. Uh, we need to go on to second principles about how you go about doing this. Unless your prima facie assumption is that conflict is inevitable. I don't think that. And I don't believe that history is so determinist. I think ideas matter, I think politics matters, I think policy matters, I think foreign policy matters. Um, but it actually has to have within it a core of a common policy proposition which accepts the fact that China is a high civilization of continued existence for 5,000 years, which had a bum rap for a couple of hundred years from a bunch of Westerners, uh, including the Japanese. Um, you know, these things are real factors in China's political consciousness. Um, just as the Southeast Asians now complain about China exercising too much power and too much authority. And I hear that in the region as well. So all these things, frankly, are real and not just driven by, shall I say, preconceived malice, uh, by a deep underlying cultural predispositions, Southeast Asian, East Asian, or for that matter, Western. So there is a space to occupy here, Steve. And I think you guys in this council, because you've been around for so long, as I said, uh, what impresses me about this lot, your lot, um, is um, in the enormous twists and turns of this relationship for the last 40, 50 years, you're the one institution that's been around. I think you underplay the role that this institution can play. So if you think it's worthwhile taking any ideas that I put forward and socialising them into both systems and do that. Uh, on, the sound, one, on the sound of another hand clapping, I take up a position as a visiting scholar in Tsinghua University next week. Um, and um, so, as a humble member of the Australian Parliament these days, some will find that a contradiction in terms. The, um, <laughs> the, uh, I'll go to Beijing several times a year, round table with policy guys and leaders and others on these subjects. I'm speaking at Hawthorne Industry next week. Um, and just like I do in Washington. And hopefully we can socialise something which creates the, uh, the, the, the ferment for a new mindset and frankly a practical way forward as well. Thank you.